0: Welcome to the Burnbag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined by Andre Ganuella and two very special guests for this Snap podcast on Russia and Ukraine. Andre, we've been talking a lot about this issue for months, it seems like, and so I thought it'd be a good idea to have a, just a frank conversation about really where we are, maybe where we're going and some of the solutions that the U.S and allies could take. And so I'm being joined by two very close friends of mine, uh, Theodore Taowwski, Theo. Um, And Tyler Breeden, both of them know this issue really well. They're both uh, law students with me at GW. Uh, And so, guys, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us on, Ryan.
0: Um, So, Andre, we we most recently talked about the Ukraine-Russia issue in our Monday podcast to kind of preview it. Um, I gave some opinions, you gave some of your opinions, but really I want to kind of just set the stage and provide some recent developments on the Ukraine-Russia issue. And so on Monday, this episode's coming out uh, on Wednesday, on Monday, the Pentagon said that about 8,500 US troops have been placed on high alert so that essentially they're being ready to deploy should the NATO rapid deployment be basically called up. And so it's not authorizing any forces to go into Ukraine and neither is NATO, but it's a support um, sort of deployment should it be necessary. And so this is the landscape, right? We have troop mobilizations coming about. We have NATO sending more resources into the region. Russia is continually sending personnel and uh, armaments and other support type um, assets into the region. And so it's, it's essentially kind of like the Cold War, right? It's, it's It seems almost brinkmanship-like.
2: Yeah, it sounds like brinkmanship-like. I mean, I think I brought up that word on what in the world on Friday. But I mean, let's take a step back for those folks who haven't necessarily listened to our previous episodes with Ambassador Steve Pfeiffer and other big Russia experts. I mean, Ukraine got its independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. Well, when the Soviet Union dissolved, right? But before that, before the Soviet Union existed, Ukraine wasn't necessarily independent for centuries, right? Wasn't it part of the Russian
0: Empire? All right. So uh, I don't know how far back you want to go. And I made a joke to, to Ambassador Steve Pfeiffer saying, do we have to go back as far as Kiev and Rus, which is like this old princely amalgam of a state that preceded Russia or even Muscovy. Um, but yes, it's important to like think about what was Ukraine before it came to be. Ukraine has always been in one way or the other, a part of, you know, Russian-ness, not necessarily because it wanted to be, but because it was invaded or a part of it. And so the, the Russian people and the Ukrainian people, depending on who you ask, are either, if you're Russian, you say they're one people. If you're Ukrainian, you say we have our own identity and history and culture. Um, and so, yes, um, Ukraine and Russia have a very close and, in many parts, shared history. Um, But if you talk to any Ukrainian that's not a, you know, a a Russianist or maybe pro-Russian, they'll say that they're completely separate countries, that Ukraine has earned its sovereignty. And so, despite what maybe some in the Kremlin or some in pro-Russia media circles may say about Ukraine not existing, it certainly exists.
2: Yeah, it certainly exists. And uh, I mean... When you talk about the Russianists and the more pro, you know, U- Ukraine people, how how big of a population, I guess, are you know more pro-Russian forces within Ukraine?
0: Yeah, so it's um it's a it's not as big as it maybe seem like it is. I mean, so in there are Russian speaking people, and again, it's very different versus Russian speaking versus Russian. Many Ukrainians above a certain age are Russian speaking because the Soviet Union. Forced everyone to speak Russian, but also because the proximity, a lot of them speak Russian. So, nonetheless, there's a very large Russian speaking population in Ukraine, most notably in eastern Ukraine, in this Donbas region, in Crimea, which is again was annexed illegally and invaded um, by Russia. And so, there are pro Russian sentiments in Ukraine. The vast majority of the population lives in western Ukraine. And so, a small contingent. And again, I don't have numbers in front of me, but a a small percentage of Ukrainians are pro Russian or maybe hold Russian passports. And there's a, you know, we can have a longer conversation about that because after the annexation of of Crimea and the invasion of the Donbass, Russia began to issue Russian passports to Ukrainians living in eastern Ukraine. It's a whole. Responsibility to protect mechanism, essentially. So in 2014,
2: we've talked about this before on the podcast, Russia took Crimea, a crucial part of Ukraine, and they've kept that part of Ukraine. They've kept Crimea. So when we're talking about this Russian invasion right now or this purported Russian invasion, what exactly do they want? Are they going to like march into Kiev? Or are they going to overthrow the government? Or what parts of land do they want? Do they want the whole
0: country? What it's, a, they want? it's a great question I, I do want to bring in Tyler and Theo to get their perspectives as well and i I don't know. I can give you maybe my assessment of what Russia may want at the end of the day. it's what Putin wants, right He is the driving factor behind all of this, essentially of course, the elites the the security services, the Soloviki, um and the you know the general staff in russia's military all have a say, as do the oligarchs, but it's Putin at the end of the day, and so there are Many that believe this, and I tend to agree with them, that Putin does not necessarily want to reestablish Russian empire. I I don't think this is an empire-making expedition. Rather, it is to demonstrate to the West, and really, it's the United States, right? Russia doesn't really see NATO as a real institution. He sees it as a puppet organization of the US, in my assessment. And, and so what he was attempting to do is reconstruct the security architecture of Europe to say to the United States that you no longer have a say in what occurs in Eastern Europe, in the former Soviet Union. Um, and so I think what's going to happen here, again, I'm still very, I'm, I'm less than 50% sure that an invasion will happen. I, I don't think there will be an invasion. Because and we can talk about this later, but what I'll say and I'll stop here is that Russia is not looking for a land grab necessarily. They're not looking to take all of Ukraine. That would require an occupation, which would be very costly. They just saw what happened in Afghanistan. They've had their own issues in Syria and in even in the eastern region of Ukraine, in Georgia, in Chechnya. All of these issues that they're very well aware of. Um, but what I think Putin is attempting to do. Is just kick the United States out and have a more favorable positioning of Ukraine vis-a-vis Russia. So to have Ukraine essentially come to an, a, an agreement that they're not going to join NATO, there won't be NATO military exercises in former Soviet Union states. And so it's a essentially a redrawing of the post-Cold War security architecture.
3: Guys? Yeah. So I just wanted to Jump in here because I think that this is kind of a main sticking point that I've seen in the media, where people don't necessarily—they haven't been distinguishing between Crimea in 2014 and the Donbass region today. I think what we just talked about in terms of Russian um, views on on what belongs to them, land-wise, historical claims—I think that argument is much more prevalent when it comes to Crimea. There's a lot of history there, both with uh, Russian speaker or ethnic Russians in Russia. It's kind of a vacation destination. There's a lot of history there with World War II. Sevastopol is a very significant area. Um, and uh, I think that, that there's, there's no economic reason or, or real reason to want to go into the Donbass region. Um, I think that is much more of this broader national security uh, reasoning behind Russia's uh, current, current position now. Um, I, I wanted
1: to backtrack a little bit to, to push back on something that Ryan said, that this is that this is entirely uh, Putin's doing. And I, I, I understand that it largely is and that and that Putin is definitely the the leader of his own country. But I, I don't want to underestimate the influence that the Russian people have. Um, I think at, at the very least, we're seeing their public opinion matter right now, um, at, at least because the government seeks to influence it. I mean, we're seeing a great deal of, of information and disinformation targeted, uh, uh, by the Russian government at their own people. Um, you know, there's, there's talk about false flags attacks and, 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 you know, predicting what they might do on that front. So I think, I think it's clear that at least from a, from a propaganda and a messaging standpoint, you know, the, the government either wants their own people behind this, um, or, or that the Russian people are, are in some way disposed to, uh, to share their, their president's security concerns.
2: Real quick, what's so special about the Donbass region? Tyler, you mentioned it a little bit. Uh, we hear about the Donbass region all the time. I understand why Crimea is really important, right? Peninsula, I mean, naval stuff, all of that and so on. Why is the Donbass region so important that we keep hearing about it all the time?
3: So I think, I think you can't really have this discussion without talk, kind of recognizing that Europe post-World War II changed dramatically. These ethnic um, lines or ethnic nation, uh, the ethno state didn't really come into play until after World War II. People started kind of, you know, Poles started living more in Poland, and there was a lot of deportations that, that were the cause of that. But I think that didn't really happen in the Soviet Union because you have this kind of shared, uh, it was like kind of, you know, Ukraine and, and Russia with both in the Soviet Union. So I think that there is a, there is probably a true. Russian breakaway population in the Donbass region, and it's just been bolstered dramatically by Russian forces.
0: And Andre, I think uh, to Tyler's point, yes, it is, you know, historically, Russian people, Russian ethnic Russians, but also Russian speaking people have lived in the Donbass region. Uh, It is essentially like a mining region. It's very industry heavy. Um, It's all it's been poorer than Western Ukraine. And so but it's also strategic. Right. You have the Dnieper River that is a that's crucial militarily in there. It also acts as a buffer. Russia's all about having buffers against NATO, but not really NATO, the United States. Again, I want to emphasize that from my perspective. This is Russia's actions to counter US influence in Ukraine. And so the Donbass region is a good region to take militarily, politically, economically for all those region, all those reasons. And so Yes, it's important uh, because there's pro-Russian sentiment there. They have lit- literal military assets there. The the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, which are these proto-states that are, emerged um, after the Russian invasion in 2014, they're essentially puppet states, ru- ru- you know, run by Russia. And the the militias that are in there are essentially Russian. Um, and so these are kind of ways in which to exert influence on Ukraine and and kind of influence the calculus of their domestic political situation, because that influences Russia's own security posture. And so the Donbass is important for all those reasons. I'm not sure which kind of exceeds it, but I think Putin's always, you know, focused on history and kind of re- rewriting it with the Russian guys. And so there's that aspect to it, but also there are legitimate security concerns that there, they've been, they, they say it. I mean, they express these concerns. And I think we should take their concerns at face value because I don't think they're lying.
2: So now let's talk a bit about sort of Ukraine as a potential member of NATO. So, right. So NATO considers Ukraine as a partner, right? Uh, There were some conversations about Ukraine potentially joining, uh, but then in 2014, I think that got reversed, right? Am, Am I correcting that?
0: Yeah. So NATO, there's, well, first we have to think about the 2008 invasion of Georgia, which. Funny enough, I guess not very funny, but ironically, occurred during the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And guess what's happening in just a couple weeks, Andre, the 2022 Beijing Olympics. That's eerie, at least to me. Anyway. Um, so Ukraine and Georgia wanted to move west, to join NATO, the EU. And so Russia essentially <laughs> went in to Georgia, one, because they, you know, Georgia invaded South Ossetia, which is a Russian backed separatist state, but also because Georgia wanted to join NATO. And that's a non-starter for Russia. The same is to be said about Russia's 2014 invasion, annexation of Crimea and the incursion into the Donbass region. That is because um, Ukraine was moving more and more to the West, but Again, important to note that we talked about this. Viktor Yanukovych um, was the president of Ukraine. He was kicked out, essentially, and he fled to Russia. Um, and there's this Maidan revolution. Go to the episode with Steve Pfeiffer to learn more about that. Um, but But anyway, so Ukraine at one point did want to join NATO. They still kind of do. Most Ukrainians want to be in NATO for obvious reasons, right? The Article 5 protection ensures that they have some sort of security guarantees if Russia really, were to engage in any sort of incursion. NATO does not want Ukraine to be a member. NATO is not prepared. And certainly the US is not wanting Ukraine in NATO. But the, the whole idea is you want this open door policy that any country should be eligible if they meet certain requirements to join NATO. But no one wants Ukraine in NATO other than Ukraine, because no one wants to go to war with Russia. So that's kind of the landscape of the, the history, the short of it.
3: And now that, that's also been kind of a point that's also been, I think, misunderstood in, in the media most recently, is the United States has been discussing potentially moving, I think, around 8,000 U.S. soldiers, I think, into, into the region. And a lot of people have been saying, oh, we're gearing up for war with Russia. And, and we're not. Those troop movements are, are to NATO countries to reassure them that we have their back in the case of a Russian invasion but it's not to reassure ukraine that we have their back that that's that's something that i think is is misunderstood dramatically ukraine is not a part of nato so they do not get that article 5 protection
1: and and something else that you know in, in terms of discussing you know ukraine being added to nato i think we need to recognize that that ukraine is not a member of nato and so you know there's there's the nato alliance has been under attack by foreign adversaries right now i mean we see uh uh russia claiming and we also see uh uh you know chinese hopping into this uh opportunistically uh There's there's been Chinese diplomats on Twitter saying, oh, look at the faults in the NATO alliance. It's cracking. It's falling apart. And and that's simply not the case. I mean, NATO does still stand strong to protect NATO members. And and what we're seeing with Ukraine is, is, you know, is is foreign policy. Maybe they're a partner, but um, that I think we need to recognize that what happens in Ukraine is not necessarily emblematic of of what happens with NATO partners when they're threatened by foreign adversaries.
2: So now where are Russian troops stationed right now as of this day? What have troop movements generally looked like? How rapid have they been? And how close are they actually to the border? Are they within like a stepping distance of the border or where are they?
0: Well, I think the better way to answer that is, is where are they not? I mean, they are, I think distance is crucial because Western media has made it seem like they're a lot closer than they actually are. And also there's been pre-positioned troops around Ukraine, far preceding the actual recent increase in troop numbers in these like, battalion groups and other sort of regiments that are moving there. Uh, nonetheless, this is concerning. So Russia has troops in Crimea after the annexation. Um, they have troops in the southern military district, kind of in southeastern, you know, where the region kind of close to southeastern Ukraine. Um, but they also have, I mean, not technically, but the, the, the pro-Russian troops that are basically ruling uh, the Donbass region could be kind of counted in that calculus, and at least in my opinion. And I think most concerningly recently is that you see troop movements into Belarus. So we have these joint military exercises in Belarus in February. And so in, because of this, we see movements of not only troops and materials, but Sukhoi jets, you see S-400 missile defense systems, and that has been said by a lot of analysts that that is a direct route from Belarus down to Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. And so, yes, while there are a concerning number of troops, about like thirty-five that are essentially encircling Ukraine, some, a lot of them have been there. But right? I think three out of the, the 10 different um, battalions that you can look to or regiments that you can look to were pre-positioned. And those that are moving in there are not as close as it may seem. And so I'll have it linked in the episode description of some of the maps that show this. Um, but I mean, some analysts have said that, yes, while this is certainly concerning, it's not as kind of dramatic or imminent potentially as some make it out to seem.
3: And I, I think, yeah, to that point, uh, the imminence piece has been something that, that has been talked about a lot in the, in the United States. The United States and uh, the UK recently uh, allowed their non-essential diplomatic personnel to leave. And I think we've seen that other European countries have not been as quick to try and uh, or to allow their their forces to do that because it kind of signals that they also believe that it is imminent. And I think most recently there was a a German uh, naval official that was giving a talk to an uh, I think it was an Indian uh, college panel, and he kind of cast poured cold water on this notion that that. Germany believes that the, an attack is imminent, and I think that really um, can affect the the calculus of what we're seeing of what we're seeing here in the media uh, in the United States today. Um, but I also think that it highlights the the Russian troop movements into Belarus. Um, most recently, the Biden administration said that they were, or at least through NATO, was willing to talk about um, in negotiations. They wouldn't negotiate that open doors policy that we discussed earlier, but they were willing to discuss. Um, dialing back certain uh, military exercises. And I think we kind of see where that could be beneficial, because right now what we're seeing with uh, Russia and troops moving into Belarus is that sometimes those military exercises can be very threatening when they're on your border. Uh, Ukraine, uh, I think, has repositioned some troops to towards their border with Belarus, and that's caused Belarus to react accordingly as well. So that also escalates tension.
2: Okay, so now I sort of want to go into obligations that the United States may have to Ukraine. So when the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, the Soviet Union had a very, 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 very big nuclear payload, right? Ukraine had about a third of those nuclear weapons. And when Ukraine would have independence, those nuclear weapons were in Ukraine still, a third of the Soviet arsenal, right? The 1994 Budapest, I believe the Budapest Memorandum was signed by Ukraine, Russia, Britain and the United States, uh, which basically gave Ukraine security assurances with regards to its denuclearization. Now, my old professor from UChicago, John Mearsheimer, uh, said at the time that Ukraine without any nuclear weapons would likely be beholden to more Russian aggression. Not many people agree with him at the time, but Mearsheimer, like many times, I think was correct in this instance, as we can see now, as we see in 2014 and so on. So what obligations does the U.S. have to Ukraine with regards to the Budapest memo?
0: You're sitting in, uh, I guess I'm sitting in a room with some to-be lawyers. And so anyone want to take a stab at this before
1: I do? Yeah, I mean, so um, I think when when talking about the Budapest memorandum, um I, I think the question that the that the memorandum answers is why does Ukraine matter? Why should the US care? Or, you know, should the US get involved? I think I think the answer to that is that yes. I mean we we have this international agreement, um, and and is there some legal obligation uh, you know, to to, to commit troops? No. Um should we commit troops? Probably not. But but I think what this memo says is that the United States does believe in an independent Ukraine. And I also think it's uh it's the, the memo is important to hold up when when russian critics say well there is no real ukraine and ukraine's you know really should just be a, a russian province that no i mean that that the russian federation was willing to sign this article willing to declare very publicly that ukraine is an independent state and and i think you know um that that holding up this piece of paper in front of uh in front of russian tanks isn't going to do much but that it, it does say a lot that that russians were willing to commit to ukrainian sovereignty so i think it is uh you know a, a commitment of our belief in an independent and democratic Ukraine, but that it it does not have any legal force that'll that'll force the United States to get involved
3: yeah and the, and the other thing too to keep in mind, uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine of course had a, a bunch of nuclear weapons, but it costs a lot of money to maintain nuclear weapons to provide security for them for their maintenance uh and really, Ukraine wanted to get rid of those weapons and and the Budapest memorandum I think was really just. Kind of an in, not an informal document, but it, but it really was to help Ukraine more so than to just you know get, help Russia with their security assurances. If that makes sense.
1: Well, and, and and I also don't want to downplay the importance of this. I mean, really, a lot of what triggered uh, British involvement in the First World War was was their guarantee of Belgian sovereignty and Belgian independence. Um, and so, countries take these things very seriously, um, and and we ought to as well. But um, you know, in, in terms of affirmative obligations to act just
2: really not there. So we've also been hearing quite a bit, speaking of Britain, by the way, we've heard a bit from the British government. Uh, I think British intelligence services basically announced publicly that Russia is trying to install a pro-Russian leader in the Ukrainian government. What, what do you make of this? The United States has backed this intelligence assessment by Britain. Uh, there seems to be some intelligence stuff been, that's been going on what's your take
0: on this uh, i can't keep emphasizing this enough andre but russia is going to plan for every single contingency that they can think of just because there's intelligence that says that there's a plan for russia to maybe topple the government in kyiv does not mean that that is a plan they're going to go with of course it's concerning and yes there are pro russian elements there there's you know members of parliament that are very pro russian there are oligarchs that are very pro russian There are certainly, you know, FSB and GRU officers that are operating and trying to influence individuals that are within the bureaucracy. Putting that all aside, that that does not mean that that's what's going to happen. I think it was important for the UK Foreign Office to publish this intelligence, Um, but really, to me, I don't see that as a sustainable outcome or even a realistic outcome in Ukraine. Just because the population overwhelmingly is anti-Russian. And as America knows, and as the Russians know, it is very difficult to, to sustain an occupation with a population that doesn't support you. And that would require a lot of resources, a lot of manpower, and a lot of time to sustain something like that. And so maybe Russia is contemplating overthrowing the government in Kyiv, um, but I don't think that's going to be one of the primary objectives for them.
3: So. I- I think mainly what the United States and UK are trying to do is kind of do a name and shame kind of campaign. As soon as they're getting intelligence, and as soon as they're vetting that intelligence as being credible, they're releasing it to the world just to kind of show Russia that we see what you're doing. You're not sneaking behind any closed doors. Uh, We we see what you're doing.
1: And and I think that's an attempt to implement lessons learned from 2014. Um, When when the Russians, you know, originally began operations uh, uh, relating to Crimea, I think the West was not prepared for their disinformation tactics. I think the West was not prepared for for their particular, you know, uh, proficiency in, in information warfare. And so I think this this type of publicity, uh, State Department very recently announced and, and released um, a, a website to counter disinformation. There, there, there are just so many efforts on that front. And I, I think this is just part of that to encourage transparency. To share intelligence with the world and and to fight the, the disinformation that Russians are sharing.
2: Okay, so now as we sort of wrap this Snap podcast up, I want to take a poll of all three of you guys. Uh, I want you to tell me, do you or do you not think Russia is going to invade Ukraine, and what's your reasoning? In a minute,
3: Tyler. So okay, so I think that's kind of a tricky question because it depends on how you what you define an invasion is as um, and I think in terms of a, a large scale ground invasion. Backed by air campaign the whole bit, I think if you had asked me a couple of weeks ago, I would have said pretty high chance. Um, but today, I think with the the weapons sharing that that Lithuania and not Lithuania, yeah, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, I think the, the weapons sharing that they're doing, I think is acting as a credible deterrence against Russian uh, uh, that Russian um, option. Theodore. Um.
1: I, I don't even think Russia knows what they're going to do. And I think what that highlights is the importance of the United States' response and, and what the West does here. Um, you know, I think in a minute we're going we're gonna to discuss some of the options as far as sanctions. Um, and, and I think um, what we need to remember is that we still have the power to influence this and that it is not a foregone conclusion. Um, in, in terms of the imminence, I think if they were to act, it would be in the next, uh, in the next three months. But um, I, I think, I think it's, it's still up to us to deter it.
0: All right, Andre. You've heard me go week after week, say my piece about what I think is going to happen uh, with this whole Russia-Ukraine crisis. I am um, I'm beginning to change course a little bit. I think that nothing is imminent in the sense that it's going to be in the next day or week or even month. I'd say because we have the Olympics coming up, and they're in China, and Putin is going to Beijing. He's slated to be there uh, at the Olympics, and so. I can't imagine we're going to see anything until after the Olympics. It'd be very surprising to me. I still don't think Russia is going to ha- engage in a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I do see Russia, and particularly the parliament, is going to demonstrate their support of the, these proto-states, the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics. They're going to recognize them as independent. I, I think that is a, you know certainly very likely. I also see them sending more resources there and likely engaging in some sort of subversion, but also prolonged negotiation with the United States. Um, and at some point I gotta imagine that the US is gonna start conceding certain points. Because the last thing that the United States want this is a political issue right now, too, for Biden. He's getting hammered by half of the country right now of don't send Americans to war. And they're not going to. Like that is not going to occur no American soldiers are going to be fighting Russians anytime soon, unless something crazy happens. Um, But this does hurt him politically, particularly because if there's conflict, the world economy, given energy prices and Russia's control on natural resources, is going to be even worse, which is kind of going in tandem with other sort of economic indicators. And so... um, Both sides, I think, are going to try to come to some sort of agreement. Some analysts are saying that this is going to happen. It's inevitable. Russia will invade. I'm still not persuaded. Okay, so we have all of these three takes on
2: invasion. And of course, the definition of what exactly is an invasion has to be evaluated. But now, when it comes to US sanctions, President Biden has vowed that if an incursion or an invasion or whatever happens, there will be economic consequences like never before, right? So what, what do you guys think those are going to look like? What do you think the U.S. is actually going to do if something happens? What, what's your take?
1: Yeah, happy to, happy to start this conversation off. I mean, when I think about the sanctions that we could be facing here, um, I think of them in three broad categories. Uh, first are banking sanctions, sanction, sanctions against Russia's financial institutions. Uh, second are sanctions which target their exports, uh, and mainly there we're talking about oil and gas. That's about forty-five percent of their, their export economy. Um, and and third, sanctions which target their imports. Uh, and we're talking about imports again. The, the most common one there to be talked about is um, electronics is is you know consumer electronics and the chips and stuff which make those uh, possible. And um, I think you know there's there's been a lot of talk about the uh, the financial institution sanctions. I, I don't see those as being particularly uh, persuasive towards Russia. Um, the big one that's being talked about is is kicking Russia out of the SWIFT system, uh, the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. And really, that's that's mostly a messaging app. That's not actually how how bank transfers take place across international borders. But it's th- think of it as iMessage for banks, how they how they share information between each other. Um, and I think we've already seen that countries are looking for alternatives to that system. Um, there was talk about sanctioning China uh, by removing them from SWIFT, and uh, the Chinese government has has encouraged their banks to create their own internal system. Um, I just think, I think that particular um, sanction is is not likely to be to be that persuasive to Russia. But where I think, um, you know, the, a real effect can be had is sanctioning their export industries, um, sanctioning Russia's oil and gas. That that is a huge, huge part of their economy, um, and uh, and you know, it's it's also important. Uh, Material for Western Europe, I think the problem here is that you know for Russia to really feel the pressure from these sanctions, uh, the West is going to have to feel it a little bit too um, and and the willingness of our European allies to actually you know take some of the heat, especially as, as the winter gets cold um, I, I don 't know if they'll be willing to join us on that, but I think you know these are also quite likely because we 've seen the United States recently uh, make commitments to help their European allies find alternatives to Russian energy uh, to help import natural gas. Uh, uh, especially to countries in in the eastern half of of Western Europe, um, you know, so so Germany and Poland. So I think uh, I think that's most likely to be effective, and uh, I think that's that's what we're most likely to see.
3: Yeah, there was a there was a great article in Politico by Edward Fishman and Chris Miller about um, what type of Russian sanctions could actually deter um, uh, Putin, and. I I disagree with with Theo there that um, targeting exports is going to be effective just for precisely the fact that Europe is so dependent on Russian exports, mainly natural gas, that it would be hard to get them on board quick enough in order to act as a credible deterrent. Because what we're seeing right now, because of, I think, concerns over whether or not our our intelligence that imminent an invasion actually is imminent, we're not going to sanction Russia until they actually do something or until we are sure that it's imminent. And that's why you've seen reports a few, for the last few days where people have been asking President Biden, why have we not sanctioned Russia yet? And I think it's just because we have no, no reason to sanction Russia at this point. Um, but I think what's going to be most effective, there are ways I think that you can target uh, financial institutions um, that would affect kind of the average Russian by uh, affecting their ability to, their bank's ability to participate in the global, global market.
1: Well, I, I want to add that I think you know, sanctioning their export industry does affect the average Russian because even even an announcement to sanction the Russian industry is going to tank the ruble, and and that will have an effect on on the average Russian. I mean, you know, I I think um, the economic effects of of the export controls would be would be pretty pretty far reaching, um, and that and that you know maybe maybe we have to tie in um, banking sanctions as well. But you know, I think I think we shouldn't fear the the unwillingness of our European allies. I think the steps we're taking to actually make you know, concrete alternatives for them uh, is meaningful, um, and you know I think when we're talking about sanctions, though Tyler's right that it it has to be something that'll hit soon and it'll hit hard. I mean, sanctions that ramp up over the course of twenty years is is not going to stop an invasion. Um, you know, this this has to be pretty imminent.
0: So Theo might is actually certainly going to disagree with me when I say this, but the the implications for the average Russian people will not move the needle here. It will cause a stink, but. Putin doesn't necessarily care about unrest domestically. He's managed it incredibly well. The security services are more than capable to manage it. And that's not saying that he doesn't care about what the average Russian thinks, but that's not the primary driver that will move the needle. What I think will move the needle are a series of sanctions against the largest financial institutions, so Gazprom Bank, BTB Bank, um, and Spare Bank. The, the inability for them to engage in transactions, which Russia's oligarchs are very connected into. So if you, t- if you go after the ability for the oligarchs and the major Russian companies to engage in the Western financial system, but also for them to travel, for their kids to go to school, and, and so that, I think, is a far greater de- deterrent than maybe some other uh, mechanisms. But even on top of this, I think as, as Tyler said, um, the benefit of sanctions is that they are meant to deter. So if you implement them before Russia acts, Russia knows exactly what it needs to do to weather the storm. And so what you want to do, I think, and in, in, at least in, in my perspective, is that you can have some sanctions be prepared and you should coordinate with allies because it only makes them stronger, the EU in particular. That at least will make it even a, a bigger bite. Um, doing that and targeting against the oligarchs and the major Russian companies. And if it comes to it, Putin himself, which, I mean, he if you, if you sanction a leader, I mean, that is more or less a declaration of war in some senses. I mean, that could be seen that way. And so that is a rocky road. Um, but sanctions can be very useful as far as having deterrent effect. But I don't think at the end of the day, Russia has a war chest. They have $600 billion in reserves. Their economy is doing fine. The ruble is tanking. The stock market is tanking. Um, but Russia has the capability to withstand that economically, so I don't know I, I mean, I like sanctions. I think they can be used in a very effective way, but I'm not necessarily sure that that'll overcome the uh, the benefits that Putin perceives both politically and militarily
3: but I, I have a question for you, Ryan so we've sanctioned russia Russian officials in the past with these targeted sanctions targeting putin's friends and his allies and the government, and i don't see those have having been that effective, and at this point, it's been, uh, what, seven years since Russia invaded uh, Crimea. At what point is the Russian economy and Russian oligarchs already protecting their assets enough that targeted sanctions wouldn't have any effect?
0: No, it's a great point. And and I know Theo wants to jump in, so I'll let him jump in a sec. Um, So the current sanctions right now, they're implemented, and there's a bunch of them, but they're not that severe. And that's the main aspect that can be, it can be ratcheted up. I mean, tenfold. So, right now, I mean, you can compare it to the Iran sanctions, right? Those are sanctions that have a huge bite and debilitate their economy. Russia's economy is far stronger than Iran's. But when you target the companies and the businesses doing business with those Russian companies and prevent any sort of transactions, but also prevent them from traveling, that is where you'll see potential gains. And so, we, and we've yet to see that. And so, those types of sanctions, I think, are going to be far more successful than the sanctions we've seen since 2014.
1: Yeah, I, I just wanted to agree with Ryan on that. I mean, you know, the, the sanctions regimes that we're seeing in place against countries like Iran, uh, against Cuba, for example, are much more strict and much more severe. And so, you know, that, that's, that's been the conversation is that, you know, with Russia, we can use targeted sanctions or smart sanctions or, or these, these little, you know, titles for them. But um, I, I think what's going to be effective is not micro-targeted small sanctions. I think it's got to be far-reaching. I think it's got to touch the whole country Um, And I I, I just, you know, I want to remind us that that the U.S. and the West is going to feel the effect from some of that. I mean, gas prices might go up, um, you know, shipping might get even more expensive than it is right now. Um, You know, we're we're not going to come through this on days with this, you know, the the, the idea behind the targeted sanctions is that we'll we'll target a few couple individuals and then it won't really feel that bad over here. But I I think that that's just not going to be effective in this case.
2: Well, gas prices are going to go up tell me something new i mean (laughs) anyway guys this has been a really enlightening conversation i I really appreciate theo and tyler you guys coming on and sort of talking about this uh because i think so much so many of us have been hearing so much about this lately but we really need to figure out how we can contextualize it and actually organize and sort all this information (laughs) that exists everywhere so guys thank you so much for joining us
0: yeah i I agree thank you both for joining us and we have an episode coming out uh on monday with ian kelly a former diplomat he was ambassador to the osce ambassador to georgia served in russia he is going to be a great expert to have on the podcast and kind of in addition to our more amateurish insights and analyses but nonetheless great conversation i'm glad we did this